portion for which I should be prepared.
do this so i'm sorry folks i know this is not uh optimal and i don't know could you could you just uh yeah. play it that yeah. end and uh yes father of raccoons i've got a new t-shirt um i'm trying to do a stream with charles uh we've been talking about this for uh a while and uh, it's just technical glitches right now my laptop just is unable to cope with live streaming hmm. which is odd it's 16 gig of ram it's it's not that old um it should be able to put some video and obs is warning me that uh encoding is overloaded and yeah it just looks glitchy as as hell we'll see what we get just uh is it's it's working there's people in the chat yeah it's just it's a it's it's choppy choppy um you see those goldfish costco here <laughs> make a size of the bed yeah it's not me that's uh look at my shit that's commander rixie <laughs> it's just bigger than my head dude <laughs> Um, yeah, we didn't really clean up, I guess. No. <laughs> Alright, uh, can I guess turn the sound off on that? And let's do this. Alright, so two of us should be on the screen right now. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I don't know what the bandwidth uh, it's pulling like that, but give me a sound check, bro. Testing, testing. All right, so oh, I know what I need. We need the chat in. So Nicola. Okay, that, that that works. Um, let's do this. Copy. Reference. Okay, and let's try. Okay, just just so you know. Okay, if it sounds good, um. I'm not going to mess with anything too much. Um, I, I think we're sort of stretching the tech as it is. So, um, yeah, I apologize for the lack of streaming. It's not for want of trying. Um, we're in a hotel right now that has somewhat decent uh, internet and um, I'm caught between a rock and a hard place and wanting to sort of do streams and then uh, meet people and just um, discussing important 
issues and um, one of those or not, not just one but many of those important issues revolve around uh, the the work that Charles is obviously doing a uh, a position in which I've um, had to plant myself and take the slings and arrows of which is um, the overlaps with biowarfare research and the pandemic and in in this particular set of variables there's hmm, you take you're taking heat from many many sides and what we wanted to do in this stream was um maybe work through why charles and myself think that the biowarfare paradigm is probably the stronger one what evidence we do have that we think is crucial to hold that and the and a few other um, bits and pieces that have come up. So I've, I've, I've been keeping a eye on the Discord somewhat and, you know, I've seen the um, infectious clones discussion going on there. So uh, I think we'll try and address some of that, right? Yeah. And um, <clears throat> the... Oh, and I, I saw the... I watched the Rounding the Earth stream this morning with Mark... Girado, I think is how you pronounce his last name. Yeah. And um, I'll just give my uh, two two pence worth on on that. So, um, say hello, dude. Oh, I just say this is momentous because Charles is literally right there next to me. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, with my goldfish. Yeah, with big massive goldfish. Um, <laughs> It's got real cheddar though, so it's I, it says it on the box, so it must be true. <laughs> so yeah, man, take take it away. I'm gonna grab my. Well, I mean, we're uh, we're obviously a little more relaxed today, um, probably because we're in the midst of surviving our experience in, here in Austin, Texas. Mm. But there's actually a lot going on today. We have the election here in the U.S. going on as we speak. And I've already voted. I voted uh, Democrat. How dare you, bro? A week ago for Donald Trump all the way, or you know, whoever's on the ballot. So, um, but obviously for the last two years, I've been talking about censorship and recent, and talking to people in Congress about censorship, and to people who are in, in litigation right now about it. And so, we'll, 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 we will. What I'd like to do is just kind of throw out some thoughts about the the election also throw out some thoughts about there's all these little various little um, stories that are developing and I want to give my my take on this this bioweapon debate this debate over well, I don't know how to best like explain it but just the the fight over okay, what is an infectious clone? What is a quasi-species quasi-species swarm? But but just more generally, what does that actually like? What could that look like? And 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 offer some 
some constructive thoughts on why we probably shouldn't just close the door um, diffuse or close the door on gain of function research or well, so assume that the viral swarm will I think the viral swarm is misunderstood by all of us and there's a lot of questions that haven't been answered and I, I, we just want to clarify what we do know and what, what we can say and really what we can't because I don't know, we, I, we've been brainstorming and so we yeah, want so to do justice to it. Yeah, so it's, it's a case of com working towards common understandings of technical language and like all language um, you could argue that it could be sliced and diced indefinitely if you're into deconstructionalism and uh, reality is completely slippery. Um, we, oh, I don't think, or I think in science there's less scope for that and we should be, um, should be careful about what we do change, when we change it, and there has, there has to be good reason to think about uh, or, or use questions, etc. So, um, and this is a key thing within the sciences anyway. So this is normal, normal scientific discussion. And so let's, I think, I think the biggest one on the discord is just the infectious clone debate. And so obviously that's been, uh, Jay. And I, I guess if I was the use of infectious clones, negate the premise of gain of function biology and or, or the concept of gain of function biology and i'm i'm of the opinion that particularly when if we have to put it in a biowarfare context that doesn't pick up from um i i think that a big part of this problem is it's there's in many ways, we're not that far apart in what we're arguing. In fact, I would say that 95% of the, of what JC or, or other people who have that perspective have been arguing is exactly where we are. Mm. Um, and even with the, with the concept of okay, what is, like, when we're talking about gain of function versus infectious clones, I don't see the... I'm not seeing the distinction that's being made. I think that it's an unnecessary distinction. Mm. And so that part of the problem is that when we make, when we try to make a distinction between what gain of function is and what an infectious clone is, the artificial um, demarcation causes us to get rid of evidence that we don't have to get rid of. And then it hurts our our own arguments without providing much benefit. Mm -hmm. Is it a change in effect, a hurt, spread, or any other changes? Is by the biological weapons invention allowed? Because there is no There's no medical for it. Medical research. Exactly. And so in order to to get around this, the the powers that be in different countries said, well we will uh, we, we don't want to give up all of this, so we will just call some, we'll, we'll just say research that it can be either biodefense or de defensive bioweapons research or offensive bioweapons research. And I would just like to state for the record that this is a first grade test. With those two statements, what's the 
if if you say bioweapons research and biodefensive research i'm sorry if you say defensive bioweapons research and offensive bioweapons research what is the same word in both of them bioweapon yeah it's uh, bioweapon and the truth is as a military person who is dealing with seaburn for years which is what nato calls wmd everybody knows that that that's a it's a dubious distinction at best we all because none of us can ever we can't it's it's very difficult to say one way or the other without more like specific evidence what someone's intent is and that's the way that's the way the united states wants it to be so i'm going to make just a mental note that um as we get into this we should we should again through this discussion and looking at timeline and i think that that tells us a lot about what it is that we're dealing with and so that right. that provides a lens through which to look at the current um phenomenon well exactly because we have an investigation you have to start with your conclusion and then work your way backwards to the evidence to find the evidence that you want to support that conclusion you go with the evidence that exists and put it together to see what conclusion it leads to that's the proper way to do it and and in the analyst world that I was familiar with, we 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 don't figure we, that's what we do. We start at the details. We put these details together, and then from those details, we have like we have a way of like okay, framing. Okay, does it meet this criteria? Does it meet this criteria? I mean, basically flowcharts, and it's rather unambiguous. You can you can figure this out simply simply following this. And right now, as we'll we'll discuss more in depth, it does not lead to someone that was whoever this was that created this virus. It does not lead to an intent that was for the betterment of mankind. So, so about or dual use research of concern, which I I would just add that that's the phrase that should be used more common to research concern it should right rather than trying to imply or saying something like gain of function um you could take something away right and impart function right so you know there's a it's it's more blurry that the 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 distinction whereas dual use research of concern is just you work on something that can be weaponized and in this instance every every technique that that's, that's available to the bench is uh, potentially like i said dual use right that you could uh, yeah you might have been trying to look for a countermeasure but in looking for that countermeasure you've had to uh, go through multiple steps that are um wh- were it other countries doing it and we got wind of that i would have said 10 years ago there would have been um uh, nuclear armed aircraft carriers steaming your way very very quickly well absolutely and i think so the, there's been a big argument about the diffuse proposal because and some people believe that it is an example of you know propaganda or or disinformation itself and that's when people can do that but i have enough information that the only way that that could be true is if I was actively and knowingly engaged in that effort, because I know where the documents came from. I have seen sufficient proof of that 
I know the I I did a background check <laughs> through through channels that I had those documents to me. So I was able to verify that their their credentials are so when we analyzed the diffused documents in the I wrote that Dr. Fauci was manipulating the language. And what Kevin just said, where he said that the dirk part, the do use research of concern is important. That's actually vital. But when they made the new P3CO oversight board that was going to analyze risky research, in that like document that, that talks about the regulate the new regulations, guess what words never appear in the five pages? Gain of function, do use research of concern at all. They just they just erased the entire phrases. And this is this is partly why when DARPA got this request, literally two months, three months after the ban was lifted, they were they used gain of function lingo because that that's what the rest of the government was using. They 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 didn't realize that what Fauci had done with this new program was basically create a new program that covered almost nothing. Like it made a very narrow definition and it completely ignored and left unaddressed the prior gain of function and Dirk regulations. I want to check that we're still streaming both. Um, this says lots of glitching and the chat has stopped. It, right, this is saying it's okay. Do you still have that tab open? Yeah, it's right here. Can you... Oh, it is playing? Yeah, it's playing. Okay. So, I, I don't know, YouTube, YouTube looks pretty good, folks. Um, yeah, hopefully we're still getting... Um, we're, we're getting through it. Okay, it's still streaming. Um, okay. So, yeah. So, basically, what Fauci did, when I wrote... I was very careful with the introduction that I wrote to our analysis of the diffuse proposal. And I explicitly said that he reformulated it. So, that way, all of his vaccine research was what he wanted to do. He, he wanted to make sure that everything that was focused on his pan-coronavirus and pan-influenza vaccines was not going to be in any way affected by these new changes in regulations. So they took the, they, they took the recommendations from something called the NSAAB or NSABB and basically ignored them. And they, they literally created, if you look at the document, they simply erased all the previous regulations, created a new term that only applied to pandemic pathogens or pathogens with pandemic potential that they would with known pandemic potential. Well, guess what? If, if you have a coronavirus that hasn't caused a pandemic and is different enough that you, you, you can't like state for sure that it's going to cause a pandemic, doesn't apply. And if you have pandemic influenza, but you're doing it for vaccine research, you can do gain-of-function research because gain-of-function research, the term no longer exists. So when Fauci sat in front of Congress and Rand Paul said he was doing gain-of-function research, by one perspective, he, he, he was being honest, except, but what he wasn't saying is that Dr. Fauci had erased these regulations completely. There was, there, he could literally do whatever he wanted. And, and so with, within the context of 
them being able to do what they want. Um, there's a list or a, a, a set of aims laid out in diffuse. And in part of that is to use infectious clones as a method to, um, in their words, I guess, study. But um, if you're if you're studying nuclear physics and part of your research aim is to enrich a nuclear fuel um, beyond beyond what you would need for regular power generation, for example. I think this is a, probably the easiest metaphor to use. Once you step past, I, I, from what I remember, it's quite low, right? 20%? Like 28%, 35%. There were different thresholds, but basically you didn't have, you only have to enrich it to a certain point to make it viable for use for processing in a nuclear reactor for fuel. Mm. Whereas for a nuclear weapon, uh, you would have to take uranium-235 out of U-238 to really to be effective above 90%. And that's what they did in World War Two. And so, basically, what he's saying is that what what we see it, what we see is virus is going to ninety percent. Yeah. So if if we if so if you're taking the swarm and you're you're taking a infectious clone and distilling it or enriching it down such that all you have is one type, one type that's um, deleterious to humans and is deleterious through well understood mechanisms that had been um, that were frowned upon in the in the bio warfare domain, right? That, that they knew that there were certain thresholds not to not to go past in order to, in, in order to stay within the letter of the law. It, irrespective of how definitions got changed via um, Fouch's uh, bureaucratic attempts. And in, in this instance, I, or both myself and Charles are of the opinion that um, it matters not how you get to the enrichment. It's the fact that the enrichment has taken place means that you, you're bound to your, your yeah, logically bound to hold to the that we what we, we are dealing with a de facto biowarfare. That's a phrase. That's a Charles phrase. I use it a lot, but he he used it first when I first spoke to him. And until until that premise is either removed by saying, oh, that they, they find a completely natural um version of SARS that looks and we don't think that well, I don't think we're at that point now uh, what people come along in years and say that they find something in some blood sample that no one else can reproduce um, but the the idea that you'd, um, you'd concerned about the the way you've reached the criticality threshold 
right? So you could you could make argument, oh, cycles and then non-infectious, etc. And that's bumping up one way. And then you say, okay, you, you can. There's a, a threshold above that, which uh, an infectious clone. And let's say that an infectious clone is a intriguing idea, especially if you want to um, maintain or, or control uh, outcomes somehow. The and you know, there's questions about SARS that, uh, for me, I think need addressing. Where does all six and all come from? When you're dealing with an infectious clone, it's very easy to add um, peptide sequences that maybe um, they're found to be uh, pathogenic in some form, and that, that's currently where my suspicion lies with those particular reading frames. Um, but with in the bigger picture you're still it, it's it's bio warfare research and it's it's in context that we have to look at everything it's not um it's not how much we've been fooled by you know systematic censorship and the gaming of the scientific system within the the, the last couple of years um, and in, you can make an argument, I would suggest, that in a, in a bio-warfare situation, they, they're going to pro program in those types of elements, right? The psychological warfare. I can, uh, I used to teach um, all of these elements, and I rewrote the curriculum for the Marine Corps, for the, for the Marine Corps' Seaburn uh, School. So I'm very familiar with how NATO approaches these things, because we were using NATO um, doctrine and teaching it to our new warrant officers and our new basic enlisted students. And we would teach all of them. And inside, these aren't public documents, but they are unclassified. And they literally lay out that in situations where there's WMD potentially being used, there's always an element of psychological operations because, if, especially if it's at home, you don't want the population to panic. Well, typically, it's kind of been backwards in mm -hmm. this pandemic, but typically you don't want the population to panic and you want them to be, you well, you want them to be able to trust you. And so what's ironic is that in this instance, our government has done, they follow this, but at the same time, once it's become apparent that this is obviously what they're doing and that this is narrative driven, they're continuing to do it and continuing to alienate the population, even if it, as it becomes more obvious. And like I said, this is a fact. This is in NATO Seaburn doctrine. So every country in NATO has the same perspective. So even if there, the event 201 or the Crimson whatever and Crimson Tide, Crimson what, what, what are all these different things that they've been doing, all of this, is tied to psychological operations that has been standard Western protocols for controlling messaging like this during events potentially like this, which tells me a couple of things. The fact that it has been so pervasive is concerning because it, the pervasiveness has covered even the origin, whereas in a normal situation, finding out the origin of this event would be the first thing that we would do because you 
that would determine how a lot of our response took place. So every week, last three years almost, we've seen a perversion of what is supposed to happen. They've done the censorship, they've done the narrative control, but they've, they've been just their own people, and they've also not been interested in finding out the origin. So even if I knew nothing, I could look at it and say that these something is wrong and people need to be held accountable. And obviously now, as we sit here on election day here in the United States, after researching this for two and a half years and ever having been in contact with members of Congress, I can tell you that whatever happened, we have been lied to on a massive scale. Mm -hmm. And whatever they are protecting, they are not protecting the citizens that they were that they swore an oath to defend. That they're not protecting the Constitution that they swore an oath to defend. And I'll just someone asked um, in the in the chat, so um, saying that you would need a um, in order to have a pandemic of Corona type viruses, be it flu, etc., that you have to have polyclonal cDNA to ignite it. I don't think that that's the case because we have had pandemics in the past. Um, I would, I, it, it, it's a long branch to go out on and just say, in just in this instance, um, it, it's all it's all down to one particular method, the the use of polyclonals. Um, well, I, I guess the best. So the best. Uh, I'm sorry, infective clones. Without even without even getting into the arguments of mm. which there. I have many concerns about the basis of the rationale for the state that about infectious clones being not gain of function is is concerning to me because it's it doesn't follow with the science. But more importantly, everything they were witnessing, they aren't treating it. They aren't treating any of this like it's not gain of function. So, and. But since we're since that is a big topic for the last few weeks, uh, JC, whom I have great respect for, his, he and I have been working together on many projects. We are currently working together on projects, and like I said we agree on almost everything. But in this, you cannot draw conclusions and then work backwards to just because you have two points and you think it might be a straight line that connects them, because that's not the case, and. So, for example, first of all, what is an infectious clone? Uh, an infectious clone is literally, it's in the name. It's a clone of a virus that's infectious, which is not an open okay, Viruses, there are factors, and JC talks about those factors in several streams. That's abstract. But, first we, we must note that any, per the Biological Weapons Convention, any change to a virus or, or any pathogen that increases the lethality, the transmissibility, the, the receptor recognition, uh, anti antibiotic resistance, there's, there are 70 things that gain of function. So gain of function is not a term tied to the way that you construct a virus that's irrelevant. In fact, it doesn't have to be a virus. It's to be a construction technique. Mm -hmm. This is talking about if you have something and you make it 
worse in some way for humans, and, and that's the end product, then Bioweapons Convention says that is not necessary. Now, there, there's obviously this gray area, this corollary that's been developed specifically and led by the United States to create this distinction whereby you have biodefense and bio, like offensive bioweapons research and defensive bioweapons research. But I'm here to tell you, as an instructor of this, teaching new warrant officers in my field how to provide guidance and advice to commanders in the field making decisions based off of um, WMD suspected events, I will tell you, there is no distinction in the real world. This is a, this is a distinction completely made up to protect liability and protect against um, external or internal accusations that you're violating the Biological Weapons Convention. It has, there is no scientific difference. You, you cannot look at somebody and there's no, not a list of attributes that you would say that, well, this person is doing something offensive or defensive. The only way you can really tell is what they do with that thing that they make. So that is, it's known to everybody in the Seaboard world. And I don't, I would do a disservice to pretend that that actually means anything. All that means, that is what the DOD takes when it goes to Congress to get funding to protect itself and to get more funding without getting a bunch of questions asked about the type of research that it's doing. That's it. So um, the so the chat is saying, hang on, I just want to make sure I'm reading it fully. Oh, and by the way, this has been brought to you by Goldfish. <laughs> <laughs> Bioweapons, seaburn grade, weapons grade goldfish. I can't even get my Discord to connect. Okay, well. But there, there, there was... Uh... There's a question about, let's see if I can see it. Um, coronavirus. I'll say specifically missed coronaviruses. Is that the one? Uh, then thank you. Yeah, it was above that. Okay, I think let's go to a little bit. Uh, Look at that. Look, just dead screen. Okay, well, so I see one question on here um, where there's, they're asking, he specifically mentions coronaviruses. He, he doesn't think that you can do gain of function on coronaviruses and start pandemics. Okay, so he's referring to a, a real problem that has existed in microbiology and virology, which is that coronaviruses, by their very nature, are hard to culture. And as I explain this to you, what I understand is, if this is the case, why can we make vaccines against it? Why would they work? Because the re one of the reasons that they're hard to culture is because the, the virus is part of a quasi-species swarm. So if you have a cloud of virus, that is, that is a mixture of a like a dominant virus that's infecting but it's it's really a consent when you see a sequence it's a it's a consensus sequence that that is, is the best approximation 
for what because it's the most numerous depending on how they do it um, it's 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 representing what they think is the the virus that is able to do these things and this it, is it's incredibly complicated but he's absolutely right when there's a this cloud there is there are ones that are not replication competent they they can make babies but those babies can't make babies and it whenever they're transcribing or they're they're creating the new virions sometimes there are errors and then it gets the process gets paused and you end up with these um special virus particles which they might be a third of one or half of one or whatever it is and they're just they're junk they're filler and that's absolutely correct well, However, just, to, just to get pulled off on a uh, just to get pulled off on a tangent i wonder how much they really are junk when um they can be sort of setting the the i hate to use the word terrain right to to um uh kill the biology in favor of um, the replication competent particles to actually have success you know? right this is so i'm not a mathematician but this is a sort of a math problem and the argument that, that i've heard that's going around and, and people are there's a lot of people who are, are hearing this and saying okay well that makes sense um so here's one thing i would suggest we know that this swarm is not perfectly homogeneous so there's a mixture of things in it and the reason why an infectious clone overcomes this especially at the very beginning is because when they use bacteria to to replicate the viral sequence it creates a, basically a perfect copy a numeric and so you get a mass number of perfect copies which is not what happens in nature well first of all if you're listening to this if they're doing something that isn't happening in nature and this will make it more effective in infectious capabilities then by definition we've already crossed the line into gain of function mm. because this cannot happen in nature mm. and it's making it more it's it's making it if you get this if you get a dose of these the deleterious effects are much more likely than if you get a dose of a normal quasi-species swarm mm. so right off the bat there's I have not heard a convincing argument that that goes against what I just told you or goes against the biological weapons convention definition of this or the definitions I learned as a marine just dealing in what a biological weapon is or just a biological agent of any kind mm. because we can have a toxin virus rickettsia um, a prion anything that's biological that is better off after we mess with it is that is a gain of function and just because Fauci um, magically changed the United States or just the H&A Department of Health and Human Services definition of what this was it doesn't change anything else and all it means is that Fauci literally destroyed the regulations that he was mandated to to work with from this this governing body this advisory body the nsabb so so someone's saying are we getting into internet purse fight or uh semantics well no this is not this is not semantics i used to teach 
these concepts. And I'm telling you, this isn't a scientific debate over minutia. This is a bio the Biological Weapons Convention discusses this. In fact, this is why Dr. Fleming is able to be fighting to get a grand jury to, to instigate the violations that were done by the NIH because it's a matter of international, settled international law that when you do these things, there has to be a justification at least of a biodefensive nature. And that's the only one. And what we've, there's plenty of evidence so, so the, the ne and the next question is so infectious clones are golf but can they start two year long pandemics yes so the, so the next question is if it's whatever it is if, if you it, seed the swarm such that the swarm becomes skewed yet stable in a particular direction and we had evidence enough that whatever was in wuhan that they were detecting it a few months later in uh, multiple countries. Now, you could, there, there could be an argument made about, well, under, I don't know, more natural type conditions where there isn't international and what have you, maybe maybe you could say that it would peter out and burn out. You're right, and, and it should. But, and, so, and so I wrote down a list of, of, of things, the problems with this, with this argument, that basically the argument is that the quasi-species swarm is too unstable. It's it's too easy for all these other, it, it, it's basically impossible for these replication competent perfect clones to sustain themselves as the, as the primary quasi-species pathogen within the quasi-species swarm. And on, on, if you just look at it and as a yes or no question, that's, he, uh, Dr. he is right to state because over a long enough time scale, it would to mean whatever he is. Now, the first thing to note is that that doesn't mean that the whatever the equilibrium state is will not have parts of the genome that have become that remain as part of the dominant. So, right off the bat, if the spike is extremely superior then you can have a lot of other changes, but the spike might still be there, for instance. Because it's all a matter, at the end of the day, it comes down to evolutionary selection, regardless of these other factors that are taking place. But the other factor to this is the math that's involved when you have a perfect swarm and a natural quasi-species. The argument that has been made is that it dissipates so quickly that it that this these infectious clone swarms could not be responsible because it wouldn't last long enough to produce what we were seeing throughout 2020 because basically by the time it left Wuhan very quickly it would dissipate and that there are a lot of reasons why first of all the medical evidence from doctors the the clinical testing that was done on patients that had severe cases was was very much the same in December of 2020 as it was in January of 2020. Mm. If you go back and look at the first Lancet articles that discuss the first 41 case, the first 99. And I, would, I just want to add this, uh, you know, from my field. Okay, you can have all theory as much as you want. So 
you know, neuroscience is replete with it. But you have to, we have to ground ourselves in clinical experience. And to not do so means that you can get swept up, at, you know, small minutiae can shift your perspective somewhat where it didn't need to. And, it, you know, the question comes, are you dealing with an objective, repeatable clinical phenomenon? <clears throat> and I would say that the evidence would point to yes, and it's distinct from flu and the other pneumonias. The pneumonia, the way it expresses, is unique. The ground glass opacities, also the, the fact that we know that it's coagulopathy now, the disseminated systemic coagulopathy, and these are, these are all important metrics that you cannot just discard. And so from that evidence, we would say even, even if it was a infectious clone, that was the ignition. It was stable enough to last a year, at least until they until the um, the selective pressure being put on it by medical countermeasures. Right. I guess. And and which I believe absolutely was the case. I know JC. Like we're all in agreement that, or most of us, that the vaccines or other medical countermeasures, monoclonal antibodies. These, these, oh, so, sorry, the V word. I'll use vagina instead of vaccine. Vag is good. Yeah, there yeah. Go. Okay. So all of us, we've seen, there, there, were, there were clear temporal signals showing that there was diversity in the phylogenetic tree as they were doing these testing of these various countermeasures. Now, that could be coincidental, I suppose, but that, that leads into the argument of if we have a quasi-species swarm that is that variable, then it would it would almost it would it would very much weaken the argument that it was the countermeasures that were causing this, because why would the countermeasures even work? So they were evolving yeah, away from. How do we differentiate between an infectious clone and endemic coronavirus like H twelve OC forty three? So this comes down again to clinical presentation. Yeah, because H code. Okay, so NL sixty three uh, two twenty nine. So there were four human coronaviruses. Two of those human coronaviruses had furin cleavage sites, and as it just so happens, those two of the four were more likely to cause pneumonia than the other two. The other two were more likely to be upper respiratory infections. So when they, when these, it's it's. It's absolutely likely and probable and possible that when the, the CDC and these other countries, they were rolling up a bunch of different things and putting them into the coronavirus basket. I absolutely agree with that. But the problem is, is that there was still more that was happening that could not be covered by that. And in the stream that, um, that RF, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. did, where he had JC and he had Robert Malone and Merrill Nass and Tess Lurie and uh, Jessica Rose and maybe one more. In that, every single physician, every single MD who had been working on it was very much like they, they explicitly stated, uh, well, it, it was definitely still there. And it, the, the original virus, whatever was causing it, it was different from flu, 
And, and I, what Meryl Nash said, I think, is incredibly important. She said that she, what she had seen was that PhDs, and this is almost a quote, but not quite, that PhDs were looking at the all-cause mortality, the excess death numbers, and saying, well, they reallocated deaths here and there and put, them, put flu deaths and pneumonia deaths and everything under COVID, which I have no doubt was a part of it and a big part of it. But the MDs, to a person, and this is her, Meryl Mass, she also treated them. Something Joanna. It's very... Oh, and Joanna, I'm sorry, and Joanna as well. I mean, so all the MDs that we know, they were treating patients during this time. They had no doubt that there was a clinical manifestation of something that was different than the, than the annual flu. It was different than the annual RSV and HCOV mixture that causes pneumonia. So we can't just disregard that because that is actual evidence. And from my perspective, when we look at all of these things and we say, okay, well then how can we explain this? When we know that the quasi-species form exists, we know there is a reversion to the mean, to this equilibrium state. That they, we have to remember, when we have two clouds, well, I don't, I don't use my Marine. The things I used to teach my young Marines, I, I had different examples of <laughs> good for public consumption, but you have two clouds that are meeting. And one cloud is, is an infectious clone swarm that is virtually perfect, 100% homogenous. And then you have the natural swarm of coronaviruses that exist. Well, First of all, selective pressure is going to dictate ultimately what emerges from that. Because even if you revert to a mean, it's a mean. It's a, it's a, it's a range of probabilities. It's a, we're talking about quantum fluctuations between two clouds that are floating around with Brownian motion in random gyrations. So right off the bat, it's complicated. And it doesn't always mean... But it's even more complicated than that because it, it's it's not just random clouds and you, you've got particular in in which it is. Well, right, geographical, temperature <laughs> things, pH levels. There's all these different things that it's not just like one or two, like elements. Skew them and say that a, um, it's, it's never and you can change from what could essentially be benign and especially if right. you're injecting in and a... The key for me is that because we know that these processes are going on, we have to consider that we don't know is the time and the number of cycles, replication cycles that it takes to to move, to shift this perfect storm into more of an equilibrium state. And I would argue that there are many reasons why it's not as immediate as we might think. Because first of all, this perfect swarm it has a hundred percent replication competent particles. Also. Not every human all the time has a large number of the natural quasi-species mm -hmm. viruses in it. So if you have an area where there's a, a bunch, for quite some time you're going to see a, a predominant infectious clone swarm. And how quickly that dissipates will depend on all these other factors. But once again, they all... If, if, this, is more phys, if this is more fit than the natural swarm, then that pressure is going to be less on it to revert to the state. 
So uh, the question is, is the pandemic being created and sustained by premeditated human action? Both Charles and myself would be in agreement. Yeah, with, absolutely. Yes. absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yes. And th that, we have to that's... clarify the, what actions they are, but yeah, absolutely. And obviously but the, cl the clinical one is a nice, or somewhat nice in that many, many different clinicians can agree that there's a cluster of symptoms that define an illness right. and Parkinson's in Japan looks like Parkinson's in New York or London. Okay. Now there may be some differences dependent on the uh, ethnic group, but by and large, uh, once a disease is defined, then you, you tend to sort of categorize in, in that fashion. The, well, I guess this comes to the, like the, the, the bigger framework here is we still have to account for um, a lot of excess death and that has to be our primary goal in engaging in or our primary goal to try to understand that phenomenon right you don't, people don't just die out of nowhere there's a reason that there's a rhythm to it and a uh, an expected rate etc we we have to well i guess I, I, it's difficult to put it succinctly i guess well i death death being um but people requiring yeah you, you well so basically i i wrote down some things as as I've been listening to this conversation for the past couple of weeks, a list of things that deals with um, the questions that are unanswered that, that bear to this. And at the end of the day, people died. And there is clinical evidence to show that even though absolutely fabrication and, and, and exaggeration of what was related to COVID, nonetheless, there were COVID deaths. They were consistent in their clinical presentation across time, across geographical space, regardless of um, various so, so social conditions, like th there were variances, but there, there was a consistent uh, manifestation of symptoms that was occurring. And, and, and so we have to be able to, we, we can't, my perspective is we cannot close off avenues of, of evidence until we have a sufficient explanation that, that can that can cover for it that has its own evidence. Mm -hmm. And so far we have various theories, but not all of those have the evidence to support it. And so here's some examples of questions that I think that all of us, whether it's, it's whether it's us or JC or Matt Crawford or Robert Malone or any of these people. If, if we're going to, we need to be get putting the quasi-species swarm into this conversation. But we, we also need to be able to ask questions about what does this actually mean? And so one of the things I wrote was that the rate of mutation in the Wuhan sequences and, and in the broader rate of mutation during 2020 was below average. And so that it was below average against other viruses, including flu. So this was abnormal. Then there was a period of time at which this changed 
and it sped up and it accelerated to the point where it was between two and five times what anybody else had ever seen with other viruses. And part of, that was being driven by, like a majority of those, of those mutations were coming from the spike protein, just one part of this virus. There were so many mutations in this one part that it was actually enough to double the average that we would see with viruses over time. And Trevor Bedford was noting this, giving it different um, excuses and reasons why it was happening. But this is, this is absolutely the case. So whatever your problems with PCR or sequencing or whatever, we saw this trend. This, this, this trend is real. Now, it took a long time for a mutation to emerge in the consensus sequence that could outcompete the wild type strain. So one implication could be of that, that the natural, that the natural quasi-species swarm was not the one that was driving these mutations. Because if it was, you would have seen, you, you wouldn't have seen it overtaken by something that was better by one or two mutations in the receptor binding domain. But yet, because it was already so efficient, it took one or two of those mutations to get the beta or, uh, variant, or to get the next variant. I remember, in this case, I, it was gamma, but that was not really that important. So, so, if that's, so if the natural quasi-species swarm was the driving evolutionary force that was, that was pushing these mutations, you, you would expect that, it, that the beta variant, like why would the beta variant be the one that outcompeted the others? And I don't know the answer, but it's a difficult thing to explain if it's the natural quasi-species swarm. What that looks more like is that it was outcompeting the wild thing and the wild uh, and the natural swarm. And that's a debate we need to have because we continued to see that same process. Whether the mutation rate was historically slow or historically fast, at the end of the day, it was being driven by improvements to the spike protein. And from what I can tell, not the natural quasi-species swarm. And that is not some... So I don't know if that can be faked completely with PCR, but I don't see, we see the trend regardless, and it needs to be explained. And at this moment, it seems like a more likely explanation that it was the vaccine or the medical countermeasures, or that it was the, an, uh, these, one of these five mutations that could have occurred to make you that much better. It was driving this, not this, amorphous um, heterogeneous swarm that was going around. Yeah, so uh, hi lady, good to see you. Um, just trying to see if there's sort of decent oh, I mean, questions. I mean, I have more, like that was just the first one. Carry on then, And that's the problem is that like the idea, the, all of these ideas had merit and and this is not to just reject this hypothesis or, or this view of this hypothesis, but this is to say we're not hearing, there's still a lot of questions that this can't necessarily answer. 
or that need to be answered before we can before we can adopt this hypothesis and to the degree where we're we're excluding other things and this is why this these discussions are so important and so the next one would be well i, I had written this would seem to negate the argument that the vaccine or the medical countermeasures the vaginas were driving this um evolution because if there'd be temporal signals being driven by natural form dynamics rather than than the you know than the vaginas so maybe i'm an idiot and i just can't see it i can't see the answer and i'm fully willing to admit that but that's a that's a question that i want i want to know the answer to because i think that's pretty important that's an argument against once again how does ade fit into this how does anti-body dependent enhancement relate to this because if once again if these mutations are all taking place and there's this equilibrium to me that would make it seem like it's it's either a super risk or absolutely not a risk mm. but it, either way it's a confounding thing that it's difficult to explain if the recombination and these mutations are so rapid that all right that swarm just negates any any emergent advantage well it's not any emergent advantage but if it ha if we see the swarm as something that can very very quickly shift and cause something to disappear an infectious clone to disappear within it 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 causes a lot of logical problems of things that we've seen arising during the pandemic and so once again we have to we have to answer those questions uh, the next one in, in one of the streams I talked about survival of the flattest um, and I think it was I think it was Matt Crawford who, who explained this and when I heard this once again the same concept this doesn't necessarily imply that the high fidelity infectious clone or portions of that clone couldn't turn out to be better a better fit for the equilibrium state so maybe this infectious clone enough pieces of it were super awesome and stable enough that it replaced a lot of pieces in the natural swarm we we, we because they've done so much to to control the narrative and hide the the and use the pcr and other things we don't have a good idea of what's in the swarm but if i had to guess i would say that the swarm in 2010 or 2015 or even 2001 before sars uh looks drastically different and far less like the the natural swarm that we have today if indeed the there is a natural swarm and i know that one argument that has been said is okay well what if they dropped infectious clones into 100 cities or in all the major airports and that's why we see this background level and that's a fair argument except once again it doesn't account for why at the end of 2020 we were seeing something that was very similar to the beginning mm. because even if even if they were doing this all across the world consistently over time the phylog or the the evolution as we saw the mutations taking place in the phylogenetic tree it was still happening in a trend so 
that that trend was happening regardless of that whatever seeding could have taken place unless they were literally seeding every single mutation in batches which i i don't think they're i don't give them that much credit okay i just want to address one thing so it says on the one hand you have kevin rixie sorokin anthony leonardi saying it's dangerous to avoid infection because it causes t-cell neurological damage so um i would i would just refine the position somewhat in that in any uncertain set of circumstances where there's a potential of again um bio warfare accidental or not um it the default position is just to of mitigate the harms to yourself now does that mean that we batten everything down um dungeons and cellars till well until <laughs> a little clear is sounded i i'm i'm not sure again a lot depends on the type of illness that you're dealing with and we still don't know the full clinical picture of um sars or exposure to medical countermeasures at this point it's still a guessing game this is why we need proper studies done or at least studies that aren't going to be um manipulated manipulated or yeah uh, or just um how should we say skip over uh, awkward questions and yeah you'll have all sorts of research programs dedicated to sars the virus but very few that will be looking at um the gene transfection and that you know that's a problem within the scientific community in general and is indicative of the suppression uh, apparatus that's uh, at play at the moment and you know we have a lot of vested interests right now um vested interests that are potentially literally fearing for their skin because of what has been done and i think that's i don't know have you run through that list or did you oh i saw i Pick up a few more. Or... I got a few more in. Because I'm. So, yeah, I guess then. So, we'll wrap it up because I am seeing there are lots of good questions mm. that are being asked. And, and oh, good. the point is that we should be having this debate. And by manipulating the debate, by manipulating the narrative, by manipulating the scientific debate and the scientific research that could be published, which I have quantified and, and keep publishing updated. Like, you can see these things, you can see the impact of them. And all of this has a cost. And the cost that every day that this goes on, people die. Every day that this goes on, that whatever is going on with these potential HIV inserts or with other elements of the medical countermeasures or any of this, every day that we are not figuring out where this came from and thus learning more better how to address it, more Americans are dying. I mean, more people are dying around the world, but here on election day in America, you know, I think it's an average of like 700 per day throughout two, two and a half, almost three years. It's actually probably more, but the bottom line is it's a million, 1,060,000. And in my mind, I don't care if they died of COVID or if they died of the lockdowns or if they died of the uh, the countermeasures or 
or, or, or the political upheaval or, or the economic upheaval, whatever it is, it, it doesn't matter that a lot of these people were old enough to die. <laughs> because we should value human life regardless of how close it is to death. In fact, the closer death, the more, the more wisdom and judgment those people have. And what we've done is we've, we've allowed our grandparents and our, the people with our most wisdom to be isolated and eliminated and with an excuse that we were protecting something else. And that, that is a lie. It's a crime against humanity because the only people they were protecting was themselves. Mm. And yes, this quasi-species swarm is something that they hid, that they, they understood, and that they had manipulated to their benefit. Absolutely. But we have to be very careful in how we, in how we incorporate this not overcorrect because we have evidence that is viable to, to bring these people to justice. We, we, we need as much ammunition in our arsenal as possible. And until we can reject a hypothesis, we cannot just set it to the side. And I've always been of the opinion that I will listen to any argument, but, but we can't. Because, once again, in addition to the this, no, this ties into everything else. I was going to say, just so quickly, that what else have we been talking about? I've talked about aerosol transmission. I've talked about fusion peptides. That was part of those countermeasures that were hidden because they had homology to retroviruses. And they didn't want to highlight this because if they highlighted the elements of the virus that were homologous to immunodeficiency viruses, to retroviruses, then what they really would have done is made it far more obvious than even with the FCS that these were unnatural. Mm. Because as I've explained other times, and we may or may not get to it later tonight, but the bottom line is, is they, they knew exactly what those inserts were in the Pradhan et al. paper that was published on January 31st. Why? Because that same day, Bill Gallagher, who's Robert Gary's mentor, he published something as well where he also focused on the homology of those, of the general homology, including with those at pieces. And, and he, he had discovered the, the fusion peptide in HIV in 1987. He helped create the, the structure of the organization for this class of, of drugs that was based off of this. In fact, ironically, Michael Warobi was involved in an HIV vaccine candidate in December of 2019 based off of targeting the fusion peptide. So, in January of 2020, when this new coronavirus had a fusion peptide that was virtually identical to the one from the previous month that the Vaccine Research Center, run by Fauci, that paired with Moderna to make the new vaccine, they had that choice of peptide as a target for the vaccine, among other medical countermeasures. And what did they do? They didn't just not do that. They also hid the existence of an entire class of drugs based on G that has proven more than 20 times, 20 different types or variants of this have been proven of a fusion peptide inhibitor, have been proven to work against SARS-CoV-2 and half of them have been proven to work against all human coronaviruses. And some of those have been proven to also work against the major retroviruses.
We're talking a pan-coronavirus inhibitor. Imagine, imagine that was a pan-coronavirus vax. Because what we have is something that the Chinese knew was more effective, not perfect, but more effective than any jab was going to be because they'd been doing the same research as, as the United States had been. And, but, but Fauci knew all of this and made decisions. He buried Bill Gallagher's report, even though it included the, the argument that they stole and put into proximal origin about the Fearing Cleavage site and why it would be natural. He took the other 75 pages of, that, of the paper written by Bill Gallagher and shredded it. They removed it from the final bibliography of the final draft of that paper. And that paper was seen by almost 6 million people. Mm. And so the same day is the Pratt and Evel paper that happened, where the NIH's best, one of their best researchers in this field said, yes, he, he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't know that that paper had come out, but he said the exact same thing with more definitively offered medical countermeasures that could, that could probably work against it because he helped invent them. And those, the fact, everybody knows, let's flip people off. Everybody knows that Fauci had censored, was his crew uh, pressured the Indian researchers to, to withdraw that paper. But no one knows that that other paper by Bill Gallagher was basically flushed at the same time. And that affects the quasi-species because the peptides, they're a better, they're a better medical countermeasure than, than even monoclonal antibodies because they're more permanent. However, that also means that when the new variant comes out, they don't need a new monoclonal antibody to counteract it. Mm. And once again, none of those would work if the quasi-species was as, like, as supremely effective at getting back to the reversion to the mean. So the, we, can, we cannot divorce all of these topics because they all have implications with each other. We have to be very careful before throwing away evidence mm -hmm. to not do that. So, so I, I'm sorry, I took a little more time no, no, no. I mean, that's I... just an example where it's incredibly important for us to not just reject things until we have absolute evidence to, to go against it. And, well, this is a... Sorry. I, I, no, no, no. I, I, I get aggressive. <laughs> the, this leads us into the, the, the domain of, you know, versus... Um, more serious and the, pro the problem is is that now in retrospect now that we know what we know and there's there's stuff that um well we could i don't know if we can discuss it or not but th there's elements that have come into play that points to the the, the collusion aspect and so, in and what were they clued? Well, that they were doing this research. Now, okay, if I, I'm of the opinion that what, was it just something approximating an accident? They, most people would have been okay. That shit happens, right? We live in a technological age. We have nuclear 
meltdowns, now we have uh, containment lab failures. And it was, it's yeah. not the first time, it's not, it's not the last time. And um, it means there's something, I would argue, and we have to think along these lines until it can be dismissed, because to not do so is to leave yourself open to um, the same or a variation of uh, the attack. And we, we in, in trying to hammer home the colluding aspect, something like Diffuse is a primary source document. And it's not a, it's not a, it's not something that you can just dismiss just because, just because, um, you, you, you think that the stage play or the, 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 the magician's trick, the illusion, um, is, is the, is, is what we're dealing with. And I'm. Well, I don't like I say I'm. I, I I don't want to engage in. Um, well, what can like I say? There's there's I I don't know what I can say and can't say publicly on a stream right now. Um, just just with respect to the technologies that we know are available. Let's right. say. So the, there's so much more that's. <laughs> There's been so much censorship and narrative control that one of the main tactics that's been used is that anytime there's a new development, it's, and basically the, it's always a pro-lab origin development because there are no developers. There basically can't be developments in, in the, on the other side because it, it requires the evidence that there's a rehashing of different arguments. Every time you develop it, whether it was the diffuse proposal or these were this newest thing with restriction sites, or even just our better understanding of the quasi species. Like, I mean, I, I, I give all credit to, to, uh, to Dan, to Dan, to Dan Sorotkin, who was one of the founding members of, of Drastic. And he was instrumental in getting this concept out there. And so was JC and he, and JC continues to carry this. And that's incredibly important. But in each case that we've had these new things come out, what we've seen is that there will be an immediate large-scale response from the narrative controllers. And the public doesn't even know that 90% of the content that's coming against the lab origin narrative is coming from scientists directly, not, not indirectly, directly implicated in parts of it. And by that I mean just at the 2-1 meeting with Fauci and Farrar. These are scientists that were at the 2-3 meeting with the OSTP chair, Kelvin Drogemeyer, who lied as the presidential science advisor to Trump. And I know this for a fact because Congress has, has validated and told me this is that what you discovered is true, that the presidential science advisor with colluded with Dr. Fauci to hide all of this from President Trump at the time. So unless Congress lied to me, that is a fact. And the reason it hasn't come out yet is because Congress isn't, con well, <laughs> the, the, the minority in Congress until January 3rd, more than likely, has, 
has been blocked out by the media because the media has continues to work with they've been complicit yeah. yeah they've been complicit but i'm telling you that just the fact alone that a presidential appointee would withhold information about the research ties between his own NIH and this this Chinese laboratory or with any of the other laboratories that that is a violation of the oath that they took and technically the the only the only way to um, to like if somebody violates the oath that they took to the Constitution there is only one there's only one charge that gets charged and it's, it's treason now that doesn't mean that it's like in the, in the military when you're at war and uh, you disobey an order and then the a commanding officer can has the legal authority to um to punish some per person to punish the treasonous person up to including death that's not what i'm saying what i am saying is that it's a felony it's a crime it's 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 not unconstitutional because <laughs> there's no crimes that are constitutional, um, but it is a violation of your oath of office. And Dr. Fauci took an oath of office, very not exactly, but very similar to the one that I took. So we are talking about crimes that have been committed by presidential appointees, by the Presidential Science Advisor, Kevin Drugemeyer, by Dr. Fauci. And President Trump learned about all of these things with the emails from when the stories broke on US Right to Know and BuzzFeed. So he learned about the Fauci emails on May 31st of 2021. He didn't learn about the content of those of that two of that February 1st, 2020 teleconference for 15 months after he was out of office when he discovered that his own cabinet members, level officials, the National Security Council people had been kept in the dark by the people sworn to, to be in public service and protect the public health of the citizens of the United States. And so the, the crux of this is that when you hear in the future, in the near future, Dr. Fauci or the intelligence community or somebody else say, for reasons of national security, we were, we were not, we were, we were protecting something. I, I want to be clear. I, I want to be fair, honest, and, and clear. That is bullshit. That is absolute bullshit. Because what I, if I'm Ben Paul or whoever else, if Dr. Pouchy says something like that to me, here's what he needs to understand. National security is not a good excuse. It's simple when we're talking about this pandemic. The purpose of, of securing a nation ultimately is to secure and take protect its people not to protect its bureaucracy not to protect its institutions to protect its citizens its citizens go to iraq regardless of how you felt about it how i feel about it i didn't go there to fight to protect the department of defense i went there because i felt i was protecting the american people and if if I didn't feel that that was the case. I would not have deployed. I would never have enlisted. So I want them to understand that there are a million dead Americans. So 
There is no national security clause. There's no national security um, project or idea, concept, precedent. precedent. There's none of it that supersedes the need for justice for 1,060,000 Americans. I don't care what they died of. But the fact that Congress has held zero hearings, joint hearings, about this, and we've had more than 20 primetime hearings over the January 6th attack, when one person died, and the same day, 3,700 Americans died of COVID. 3,700, 3,700. So when I watched the intelligence community give the Biden report to President Biden on August 27th of last year, and they didn't discuss Diffuse, I knew about Diffuse on August 27th. I knew about it. And I was waiting to see what they would do. And they lied to the American people. They were never going to release that. So, national security, the, only thing that the primary national security interest of our leaders is the citizens of the United States. It is not the bureaucrats who dole out money for gain-of-function research. So, if, if Dr. Fauci honestly feels that way, well, he's wrong. But I, I never want to hear it again. I don't want to hear anything. Anybody use the excuse of, for national security reasons, we had to do this. Because that time has passed. Hmm. Until there is justice for uh, one million Americans, we must do whatever we need to do. Right, it goes beyond that. It, it, it's about the world that we're stepping into. Um, so it, yes, the justice is important for the dead, but we need to make sure that the world that we're leaving to our children is not one where the, these types of events can become the norm because they're, they're not, I say the norm, but uh, are utilized, let's say, or for nefarious purposes. They've normalized it. Yeah, they, they've, think about this. They've normalized the concept of, of this mRNA as an effective tool, but they didn't provide the evidence for that. And I don't want to get into that because this is bigger than that. It, it, they have a responsibility to us to justify the things that they do. Because understand that they took our tax money, did this research, enabled these scientists to make foolish decisions. I don't care if it was on purpose or mistake or whatever. They took our money away from us, used our resources for this. And if, I don't, if the, the, this pandemic came from a non-natural origin, what that means is, is that the American people will have paid for the virus. They will have sacrificed for this virus. They will have paid for the countermeasures. They will have paid for censorship, the violations of the First Amendment. They will have paid 
for the funerals that they couldn't attend. They will have paid for the hospitals that they couldn't visit when their mothers and their fathers and their grandparents were dying. When my 26-year-old wife's best friend, who's the maid of honor at her wedding, died on a ventilator, on dialysis, and, she and her husband, who was also hospitalized, an active-duty sailor, he was released from the hospital and he could not go back. He could not go back. And for the last four days of her life, he couldn't go back. So, and I had numerous frontline doctors who were trying to assist in, in getting information and advice and um, just opportunities, whatever they could do. And these same doctors did this for millions of Americans while our own government was preventing us from being able to even see our family members. So I don't have a lot of sympathy anymore because they don't deserve sympathy. These deserve accountability. They deserve to be held accountable for the decisions that they made. And I, I can't think of a... They've, the, they've aborted all of their responsibility. And ultimately, they've used our own resources at a time when we should be... Technology should be taking us to better places. They use our own resources against us to oppress us. Maybe I can say this. That they, we know that they've deliberately suppressed technologies that could have completely changed the face of this pandemic. Right. Yes. And when you find out this particular detail, and like I say, I'm not at liberty really to say much beyond that, but it, it's beyond the scale of the fusion inhibitors, I, I would argue. Well, no, I, I, I don't know. In the same ballpark, maybe. It's, it's, it's a difficult, difficult case to make. But the, the, the fact that they would have been known these technologies would have been known and they were deliberately withheld from people. That means that we're in a completely different world now, frameworks. If we're unable to stop it now. What's the phrase you used? Uh, it may not be terminal for mankind, it'd be terminal for oh, freedom, right? Yeah, Something it, it, I like personally, I think that, that as a, as a species, we're we're going to survive, um, but but we're at a, a point where we're dangerously close to a point where our freedom may not survive because we're 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 at a crossroads. Technologically, we have so much potential, but in terms of integrity and leadership at the top, we are led to I think in the history of the organization. And I mean that. I have a master's degree in history. And I mean that with all my heart. I honestly believe that the quality of the individuals who are leading us right now is the worst that I think the West has ever dealt with. Certainly at any time in our past when there were major difficulties uh, that, we've, that we faced. And I can't speak for other civilizations, but, but 
it's so obvious because I, it's as our framers would say our founders it's self-evident because well I just pray I just pray that enough people especially today here in America understand that whatever is wrong something is wrong and whatever is happening we need to be doing something different and it's it's unimaginable to me that that there are people that could that could do what they're doing but what Kevin Kevin hinted at that there's more to these stories I know for a fact because and I, I can't I, I can't just lay out everything all the time for the, because to protect the, the the people and the and the the ways that I get information but I can tell you this that I look forward to testifying in Congress preferably probably uh, based upon uh, well just based upon various things I look forward to being able to lay out all of the different ways in which to press the American people or just the people of the earth by controlling our access to medical countermeasures to medical technologies to uh, methods of detection to um, to all of these things that in addition to that is leveraging technology and understanding that that may be high probability that they deliberately put difficult to detect pathogenic mechanisms into SARS and leveraging it in, in this respect. I mean, Based upon the current evidence, yes. And that's the problem is that all of us, like, like I said earlier, they've made it, they've done a very good job of whenever new evidence comes out against them, they will hyper-focus on that evidence and attack it. But what they're really doing is distracting us from the fact that if you take that evidence and then you put it with this evidence and then you put it with this evidence, when you put all of these things together, then when they make an argument that, well, yes, the odds are that it, that it might be this, but, but it could, you know, there's like a one in 20 chance that it could be this from a natural origin. Okay. Well, but the problem is, is when you add all of these probabilities from all of this evidence together, mm -hmm. you're t you, the probability that a natural explanation can can answer all these questions is so small that it's criminal to not even be considering, not even be investigating the origin. Because at, as of today, right now, in the United States, there is no investigation of the origin of this pandemic. None. There, there have been, there have been um, partisan hearings that Republicans have done because they seek to find the answer, but they were not in the majority in either House of the Congress, and so they could not do anything about it. But the, but the entire time, for three years, Congress has had the ability to call forth witnesses, to use subpoenas, to place them under oath, to, to 
begin the process of discovery, to call grand juries, to do all of these things to hold scientists accountable, to, get, to just get to the truth, just to get justice for dead people, and understand that what they're doing is they're doing, they're obstructing justice, preventing justice for a million dead Americans. And there's only one reason, and it's not national security. It is to protect themselves. Or, or it's a really twisted agenda that they're trying to bring in well, that aspect. It could, it could be, it could be even darker. Yeah. But this isn't about, we don't need to get dark. We don't need to get, um, to, to be conspiratorial, whatever that even means anymore. We just have to, <laughs> we just have to, all we have to do is ask Dr. Fauci, why are these Americans dead? Help us answer this question. And if he will not help us answer this question, then he should, he should never have been in that position in the first place. And if he is actively obstructing our ability to do that, which in my, the evidence I've seen is incontrovertible in that instance, then, then he should be held accountable. This is not about vengeance. This is not about um, politics. This is about justice. I don't care about Dr. Fauci and his, his whatever he thinks it is, this, this, or whatever his political opinion, or whether he thinks this is a personal attack. Um, he's still alive, and there are a million dead Americans. So something, so some, he's better off than them. And, and it was his responsibility to prevent that from happening. So my patience has worn thin. And all, all of us deserve is the truth. And until that happens, um, I mean, I, I'm not, I, I can't, not that I've been silent up until this point, but I have to be, I have to be more out in the open and aggressive in explaining to people what's happening here. Mm. So there's a, there's a question statement here. Jeffrey Sachs was naive to choose days out to investigate this. It's like a fox guarding the hen house. So I want to just, Good point. Yeah. Um, just to raise, you know, the Jeffrey we, Sachs question. Yeah. And just, you know, um, because that, that has come up and, you know, the, the discussion that we had, but, you know, I hoped it would be public, but he didn't, he didn't want to do that. And, um, I would just say this, that, uh, a number of people were invited to, um, attend that didn't turn up. They were given, um, plenty of forewarning and, um, Jay was one of them and there was no, no there was no secret meeting. Um, he could have been there in on, in on the meeting and in that meeting, it was primarily, um, look, I think, uh, Sachs was, you know, his, his language was more salty than what you see publicly, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, he, he was, oh, much of it was Charles talking about the timeline 
there was and there was there was nothing new in terms of information the only new bit of information that we got who who'd reviewed the diffuse document that was it no, nothing else and um we got a name on who had been attacking him publicly which was Hotez. that was peter Hotez, yes. yeah and um apart from that it literally lasted 45 minutes and there was that beyond that there wasn't much um done in the or, or said in the meeting that people who follow me or follow charles um wouldn't know about, but wouldn't have an inkling of. And like I say, between, well, it, it, this has been building up for a few months with respect to the, well, as Charles said, it's just, um, he can't give away all the details all the time and we shouldn't expect him to. Um, but only because I have to protect the identities of the people who provide me with information. Mm. If I, if I, anything, anything that I absolutely could release without harming people who give me information, I will absolutely do. Because obviously, I'm sitting here railing against the government that has withheld information, and so there's the last thing I want is is to do that. Um, but there, there, there are people in far, far more sensitive positions who, yeah, uh, uh, that, that they could leverage all types of legal recourse against them. Right. And that's, that's not fair on them. And I'll say this, I'll, I'll guarantee you it'll come out, right? that that much is uh sure and you'll be the first to know about it well I, i've said many times that that anything that i would be willing to say here i would be willing to say under oath in in front of congress or anybody else and i mean that because I, there's nothing to hide here this this is all about getting to the truth and I, ha I have to put my integrity on the line and and I probably I am I, I I put my family name on the line I put I put my house I mean I sold my house like I'm homeless now because of this because I refuse to quit so I can assure you that I'm not going to there's nothing that is going to pressure me to stop or prevent me from saying something that needs to be said so the only the only things that I, that I wouldn't just outright say would only be if it risks uh, it it risks the, you know the people who provide me this information. But that does not mean that I'm not taking action on it. And so um, uh, you you can you can rest assured that so all of the concepts that we talk about right there's a there's a reason that we get shut down so hard and the you know, I'd say my hobby horse being um, protein misfolding etc mean that they shut me down because I was right about it um, Charles has just had the wits and wherewithal not to 
Spurg out on Twitter and he's he's literally our sort of last uh public facing member who can um still still pull um numbers somewhat and, and you know as sad as it is uh Twitter is a battleground that we you know we should concede it lightly because the The censorship isn't going to stop for the foreseeable future. And like I say, anything that would or is fighting for its literal existence right now, because I make the argument that they would, they know that when all this information comes out, that they're for the high jump or long drop, I guess, would be short drop, short drop. Long drop from a short rope, I think, is the same, right? Um, well, uh, so I'm trying to like look at these questions because I, I do want to, I, I do want to answer some things. Uh, someone, Lake Lady, she asked, "Why don't you talk about the Remdesivir plus Vent plus drugs protocol?" Um, I, well, Caitlin, the person who died, she, she was a victim of Remdesivir, a victim of the drug protocol because. She was not given Regeneron. And my uncle was sick the same week, deathly ill. And, and, but he was in Texas, and they had traveling nurses who went to his house and gave him monoclonal antibodies. In Virginia, where Caitlin lived, they, they had the Democratic governor, and they didn't do that. They, because they had different rules and regulations regarding the use of Regeneron. And so, and then she was admitted to the hospital, she was, she was already very sick, and she was not given that. She was given remdesivir, and within 24 hours, she was on dialysis. And she was 26, and she had no prior... There was nothing to indicate that her kidneys would malfunction. And so I am very much aware, and I'm a big advocate for justice and understanding when it comes to the, the malpractice involved in, in treatment of people who are in the hospital. I, I can't talk about it as much as I want to because there's so many other things to talk about, to be honest. And the, the, the areas in which I've been investigating are so particular and there's so few people investigating in those areas that I have to prioritize. But I, but I can assure you that when it comes to remdesivir, especially, but, in any, but all of this stuff, I am absolutely in support of, I know for a fact that that's just another part of this massive hideous crime. And so I, I don't want people to think that that's not something that I talk about mm. because I absolutely, uh, murder has occurred on a massive scale. And I, I literally just talked to my mom about that a couple of days ago. And it's, it's horrifying. So rest assured that this is part of the argument that that we're making. It's part of the argument that I'm making, but I can't, I, you won't hear it all the time it, because, because there's, a, to be honest, there's a lot of other better advocates fighting for that. They have PhDs and MDs and, and this is a, something that I know these other things I can, I can talk about and it's a gap that needs to be filled. So. Um, I don't know if there's other things. Thoughts on hydroxychloroquine? Uh, well, hydroxychloroquine, 
as it turns out, when, earlier when I mentioned Bill Gallagher, um, and that he, he wrote an 80-page document that was published on January 31st, 2020, he pointed out that the primary reason that the Chinese were probably working with hydroxychloroquine was A, because they knew they worked against SARS and they had much more experience than we did. And, and there was a literature, in the literature, there was many peer-reviewed studies that were, that were looking at that and the mechanisms and showed that it worked. And, and because SARS is so similar, it only makes sense to try it. But in that document that he wrote, he talks about how specifically what the Chinese were probably doing is using it as a way to limit the ability of the virus to use the endosomal pathway uh, to, well, to, ex to aggravate the, in the infection more, especially in the lungs. And so, and once again, the, that was one of many pieces of advice that, he, that Bill Gallagher gave to his fellow scientists that were ignored. And what, what can I say about like the studies and everything that have come out? All, what I can say is from the censorship perspective, I'm not a doctor, but from the censorship perspective, there's obvious and consistent efforts to shape the literature to prevent good science from coming out acknowledging this. One example is I have a video recording of, I believe it was February 13th or 14th of 2020, where Ralph Barrick and Mark Dennison of, of Vanderbilt, who, by the way, they were instrumental in inventing and testing remdesivir for Ebola and then for coronaviruses, they state on video in 2020, in February, that hydroxychloroquine has a lot of potential. And Ralph Berg invented, or he helped invent remdesivir. Okay. He's saying that this has potential. He also said in the exact same recording, about a minute later, that remdesivir has been shown to have positive results on coronaviruses. But what he, what he says is that it must be given early. Remember, this is, this is an inventor of this medical countermeasure. It must be given early. And he, he laments the fact that it only comes in a IV form because that makes it much harder to distribute, to give out in a prophylaxis or in an early stage treatment. So, so yes, I, I believe that there is an argument to be made that at some point in the treatment profile, per, that we should have at least tried it, which they did. But unfortunately, what they did, we'll, we'll never know because the way that it was implemented was given to serious cases, which by the time that, that people get to the hospital, the viral replication isn't the problem anymore. Mm -hmm. And so the people who invented it knew. And, and ironically, the same day, or I think it was the same day, because Fauci's calendar just came out. And the same day, February 14th, I, know, I'm sorry, I take it back, it was February 11th, 
Ralph Merrick met with Dr. Fauci on February 11th. It's in his calendar. We can reasonably assume that medical countermeasures is one of the things he talked about. Also probably gain of function. So, mm-hmm. And so to say that Fauci would not understand the, the limitations of remdesivir would be an insult to his intelligence. I don't necessarily believe he's as smart or as deserving of a position that he holds. But he's not that stupid. Either proceeded he controlled. They knew exactly the strengths and weaknesses of that antiviral and other antivirals. And they they chose to implement them in the way that they did with full awareness of this and full awareness of the inability that it would be able to have a measurable impact, a measurable positive impact. Because they had, I mean, they had to change the endpoints just right across the finish line. But when even the World Health Organization, the most bureaucratic and willing to ignore reality organization that you would think exists, the Fauci went above and beyond in that instance. So. Mm. so I think we've covered most of... Yeah, well, I think everybody here would at least know by now that I could literally talk about these things forever. Because <laughs> I, I, I get... I'm in a strange place because I'm not a scientist, per se. Um, but I come from a from a background of, of of an analyst, and so when I see my job was to take in information, figure out what the possible implications were, and then provide, depending on the unit, a commanding officer with adv- advice on what to do in in an operational context. We have this threat, and how can this affect our mission? And I can assure you, I can promise you, because I had these conversations with my fellow Marines who are still in, that in January of 2020, after I think the 24th or 25th, when it was discovered, or when it became known that the lab was there, and that there was a BSL-4 lab there, and the, and we started, started to trickle out. In the military, in the in professional seaburn circles, and I can almost guarantee this is the same even in non-military, like like Philip Alensos or people who are part of the Biological Weapons Convention, the Chemical Weapons Convention, or the people who are the oversight groups that, that work with them. That was the null hypothesis, because that's the doctrine. The, the NATO doctrine says that these are the these are the risk factors, these are things. And so when we would go to model that on a computer and model on a, like a, you know, like a map on a computer, okay, geospatially, how could this spread? What could happen? The, we would assume that the point source was the lab or somebody who worked in the lab, just automatically. Because you, and you would need sufficient evidence to shift that. And the problem is, is that in 2020, what nobody knows, this is, this is something that, that, that isn't public, that, that I'm aware of, that I've been told by people, uh, senior government officials, truly, that um, after the 2-1 meeting and the 2-3 meeting, 
certain scientists, some of whom were actually implicated in the research, were sent on a tour to advise agencies of the federal government on the origin question. And their message was that it was natural. Um, can you say which scientist that was? I'm sorry. Okay. Now, the, honestly, I, I don't want to state because I can't remember specifically, okay. but I can say that at least one of the authors of Proximal Origin was on there. I, I can't remember which one for sure was because there's, there's two in particular. Mm -hmm. But at least one of the authors of the Proximal Origin paper was sent to explain the origin science to our intelligence agencies and to other relevant agencies of our federal government. And that I've not spoken about publicly before, but I've known that for a very long time. And and these are just a, so there are so many poisoning the well. So many questions. Mm -hmm. But the, you have to understand that why would anybody feel the need to go to an intelligence agency or to H&HS or to Homeland Security or whatever it is. Okay, now. Why would anybody? Why would Dr. Fauci or... Sorry, I just got to say, um, there's an awful lot of kidnappings happening in Texas. Yes, Amber Alert. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Jesus. Multiple yeah. times a day. We are in, in Central and South Texas. So, yeah. But why would any government official or any agency or any bureaucracy why would they send people around to explain the science? The DOD already has scientists. The, the intelligence agencies have scientists. The um, DHS has scientists. Why would, they, why, why would you send somebody who, is un, who they know is tied to this cover-up to go around and set the narrative it's, it's a rhetorical question because you wouldn't do it because you wanted to inform about the science. Crack out the whiskey and the blunts. Uh, Crack out the whiskey and the blunts. Can't do that. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a, not really a... It's illegal in Texas. Yes, we, 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 we can't support the... Never. Um, uh, there was a, um, I guess... So yeah, so anyways, that's just one of those little nuggets out there but we don't have to we don't even have to know these things to understand that every action that had been taken by dr fauci by christian anderson by peter daschet by by all the leading scientists in other countries like marion koopmans or christian drosten or um jeremy farrar or patrick valance i could go on guilty guilty yes guilty guilty all of these people, the disgusting premeditated. I don't. I don't. Well, I, 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 what that is. So I guess the person asking that is saying is insinuating that there was all all of this. But there's a premeditated component to it. Now, whether it these are damage control mechanisms that kicked in or if i don't know they were scheming in back rooms and saying okay this month we're releasing uh 
Bow's time, right? Well, so this is a big question, and I don't know the answer. I can't. I can't just categorically state that that any part of this was premeditated. What we can state is that for two decades, uh, federal agencies and scientists and intelligence, the intelligence agencies in particular, and scientists have been coordinating and practicing what to do in situations like this. And and uh, RFK Jr.'s Real Anthony Fauci book lays out in exquisite detail in its last chapter, it goes through these two decades and lists out all these different practice events they were doing. And like the different people